Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss the exciting science behind HRV and how you can apply it to your own health and the work that you do. Just a note, this podcast does not replace medical advice, and if you're going to apply this to your own life or others, please consult with a medical provider. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Trauma-Informed Lens Podcast. I'm Matt Bennett. I'm back flying solo this week. Uh, just to do a quick introduction of this week's podcast, uh, we stay in the Wayback Machine. Uh, this is one of my favorite episodes uh, of this heart rate variability series that I did with the Trauma-Informed Lens Podcast with Kurt and Jerry. Uh, we take a pause. Um, as you've uh, maybe listened to the last couple episodes, You've seen my learning curve, and I, I hope also my passion grow and uh, insight grow for how HRV could be a life-saving, life-changing science. And um, as I started to have these epiphanies, uh, we took a pause in the series just so I could ask some questions um, and get some clarifications about what this all means. So again, it's always fun to look back at your own ignorance, uh, but you can kind of really see uh, definitely the seeds of optimal HRV start to grow here as well. So enjoy the episode and we will uh, see you next week. Um, so let's start with some of my questions on heart rate variability. Um, so I guess my first question to throw out there is, I, I think we've talked a lot, the fear response, social engagement, um, behavioral stuff, uh, a lot of different um pieces of heart rate variability. So, so my first question is kind of a simple question. Um, what does the, and then I'll give complex follow-ups. That, that uh, remains, that remains to be seen if this is exactly. So, so kind of what the heck does a measurement of heart rate variability tell us? And it's sort of the second part of that question. What doesn't it tell us? Cause it seems to be telling us a lot by the articles we're reading. So let's just start kind of with the basics of, well, what's, what's heart rate variability measurement tell us? What doesn't it tell us? You want me to take that one, Jerry? Uh, you can go ahead. It's an easy question. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Don't you have first but easy. <laughs> he, he, he set me up there. <laughs> <laughs> I get the sense that you might be setting me up, Jerry. How's your heart rate variability? <laughs> so I, I think certainly, Matt, one of the challenges is that you can really get lost in the details of understanding heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of benefit to understanding the details of heart rate var variability. I think it's really important in terms of having a an additional lens to view what people do and what people feel and how people think through. I, it's a, I think it's really important in that sense. Um, and to really simplify it, one of the things that it tells us is that helps us to be able to stay connected to somebody's internal experience and always have that in the forefront of our minds as we're engaging in so many different activities, whether that be clinically therapeutic activities, whether it be work-related activities where we have to produce growth and change, whether it be in a meeting with somebody, like so thinking about how somebody's stress response is so quickly responsive to what's going on around them. And that it, that can change on a moment's notice. And this heart rate variability measure, some of the details of this are so you know, critical as we talk about people's ability to socially engage is like predicted by heart rate variability and it's influenced by how our stress response is operating on a moment to moment basis. That's a really important perspective to carry, I think, consistently. When we think about the article about fear conditioning, the people's ability to overcome fears that they have learned previously in their life and to learn safety cues, which I think is even more important to learn when you're safe and when you're not safe is predicted by our physiology. It's not determined by our physiology, but it's predicted in a pretty consistent way. And so thinking about those kinds of things as we're engaging in teaching students new things, when we're engaged in learning new things ourselves, or when we're thinking about uh, people wanna change habits, right? As I, I think, you know, Jerry's Bright Sharing the Object was really kind of apropos that as we think about growth and change as something that 
as professionals, I would hope that we're all committed to, especially in, in the helping fields, growth and change ourselves and then helping others to grow and change. So much of that is predicted by our physiology, which is tied to our social and non-social environments. So it can tell us many, many, many things. And it can be as simple as it keeps us connected to somebody's internal state as something that's really important to be in the forefront of our minds. So, so Jerry, I'll let you add anything, but, but you know, in some ways I'm, I'm kind of more fascinated with the second part. Does it, what doesn't it tell us? I mean, so, so let me, let me um, give you my simple version, right? Cause it's, I, I have to kind of, it's really this measurement is a way to operationalize stress sensitivity. Simple, right? And if we look at it from previous discussions we've had, it's a way for us to have some measurement of our window of tolerance. So when you have high stress, high, high heart rate variability, the width of your window of tolerance is greater than when you have low. So you're going to using what Kurt said is the lower your heart rate variability, the harder it is for you to stay social and engaged and the easier it is for you to activate defensive systems. The higher your heart rate variability, the wider your window of tolerance is so you can engage socially and you can play, you can learn, you can grow, you can explore, right? And so if we think about that from an individual or we say we think about that from a parent, a parent can engage with their child with high, rate, heart, high heart rate variability as this operational measure of stress sensitivity and, and be able to tolerate a wider range of emotional experiences for that child. So in some ways, there's a piece of this that's... Um, that's heredity, but the experiences that you have are going to be influencing this along the way to kind of look at that, right? So if our listeners just think about this in terms of stress sensitivity, and for them, they can use this model of the window of tolerance and the way that we are wanting to have some way of measuring that, if you choose to measure that, is to use this RSA, right, to be able to measure that sensitivity piece. That's the, the simple piece. So in, in a way, what it doesn't tell us is what somebody's subjective experience of all this is, right? If I live in a very high-level reactive place, am I comfortable there? Right, so some of our clients, when as Kurt talked about a, a client he had, when they calm down, they're actually less comfortable. Right, so it doesn't tell us about people's subjective experience of that, and it doesn't tell us about the relational environment they're living in. So somebody can have a high, lower heart rate stress variability, but has a lot of relational support that even though they can't make as maximum use of it, it's better than not having any of it, right? So we have to really understand these measures, both in the individual, what it means, but also in the relational environment that they're in. So the situation, that, so what is the context in which this is occurring? Does that make some sense? And two, one of the things that I think is important about that, Jerry, is that it helps us with this this uh, propensity and habit that most humans have, which is to infer intent. Right. And it helps us to have a more sophisticated way of inferring intent. And we get all kinds of tripped up when we infer intent. And we're often really mistaken about that. And the more that we have kind of some cognitive structures and some um, ways of thinking about things that we can reappraise when we when we infer intent, uh, it helps us to stay engaged and helps us to design 
interventions and create programs that are that are I think more robust and more likely to be successful. Yeah. So, so you look like you had a question, Matt. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what I, you know, with your answer, I really like the part about the window of tolerance because I think that gives a, a kind of a, a more, I guess for me, a, a tangible historical model of kind of, you know, and, and just for our listeners, we, we had an episode on window of tolerance, which I really, if you haven't listened to it, to go back and listen to it. But basically talks, if, if you're inside your window of tolerance, you're basically, in many ways, operating out of the logical parts of your brain. And if, you know, as I like to say, you're, you're sort of, your body fills with cortisol, the stress hormone, it starts to, um, you know, f you know, fill that up. So, you know, really looking at, I, so I really like that piece. I guess one of the things that I, I struggle a little bit more with, Jerry, with your answer is, you know, with, with the social engagement piece, it wasn't that one article showing that the heart rate variability probably reflects the amount of social support and so somebody with more social support would have a better heart rate variability measure no what, what i'm what i'm saying to you is that if i'm dealing with somebody who's got low heart rate variability and high stress sensitivity okay right they're going to be easily moved into a defensive spot yeah. If I'm surrounded by people or structures or whatever it is that ha that are well regulated and well, I remain open to that child to help regulate them. Mm -hmm. If I'm in an environment where I have low heart rate variability and stress sensitivity and I'm in a highly disorganized stress chaotic environment, I don't have anybody there to help me, right? And so part of our job when we're building programs or we're interacting with people with low heart rate availability, they're not going to be in a spot to be really receptive and open. We can't personalize that and we have to use our regulatory places to be open and compassionate to them even though they're not necessarily open, right? So when, when you deal with say, a foster parent who expects this child to come in and be happy and thankful and safe that they're there, we've got we've to help that foster parent stay in their social engagement system, not be organized by the defensive behavior of, the, of this child, right? To kind of look at that. So I can have, so what I'm saying is, I can have somebody who has low heart rate availability sensitivity, but if they're surrounded by really people who are compassionate, socially engaged, and they do it, that child is much more likely to have an ability to get back regulated and have a different experience. If their reactivity causes a reactivity in the people around me, does that mean? So yeah. that, that's why when I'm trying to understand this individual, we have to understand in the context of the relational and milieu that they're in, the relational environment that they're in. That you can have a really defensive, reactive person who's around really well-regulated people who don't react to those things, which is why this whole concept theoretically of having trauma-informed environments is really to help create well-regulated systems around people who are in with these low heart rate variabilities. But I, for, the, for our, our um, listeners, you could think about it as for people who have narrow windows of tolerance, mm -hmm. right? I, I, not everybody's going to use these measurements. So the so if you kind of think about that, that that measurement really is telling us how wide their window of tolerance is. Excellent. I, I, yeah. Okay. So does it not tell us something though? I, because it, it seems that, I mean, even though, you know, Jerry, I, th I think in some ways I, I totally agree with what you're saying, but is there, it, it seems to be predictive of, 
everything. <laughs> well, man. I, I mean, or, or not predictive. Let me let me refer. It's it, it's a measure of everything. Even though we may not get some of the details, hmm. it is related to a lot of functions. A lot. I mean, when you think about our ability to flexibly respond to environmental demands, this is really. It's related to our ability to do that because it's connected to so many important brain structures and functions and so much of our body, right? This, this whole innervation pathway goes all the way from our prefrontal cortex through our limbic system to our brainstem to our heart to our gut. Like I'll, it's one of those things where it's like we see the more we learn, the more we find out that we didn't know. So, so Matt, what it, it, it doesn't tell us yet we haven't really talked about what are the interventions that are most effective at altering somebody's heart rate variability, right? So we have a reading of somebody's state or trait. Now, what are the things that for that individual that's going to help them move back to social engagement and be able to have experiences that begin to regulate right is that diet is that the environmental things is that the their relation is that a is that physical movement kind all these interventions we do ultimately because what we know is this stress sensitivity is also related early in life to epigenetics and in terms of your risk for health problems, your risk, right, as the ACEs studies. So what we want to take this information now is to be able to say is, let's look at what are the, not only the intervention, but what are the sequence of intervention, right? So, you know, if you looked at, say, for example, Dr. Perry's neurosequential model, he would talk a lot about pattern repetitive activity, movement, things that go on. To regulate the body before you're able to engage in a relationship before you're able to use top-down cognitive reasoning that's that's a sequence of interventions we can actually use some of these measures to kind of say is how is that process working to kind of look at that so you know as we move on in our in our understanding we can use some of this information to guide how we structure and some of the things we were doing, we're going to learn, aren't very therapeutic. Yeah. Some of the things but, that... But, but, but it kind of tells us that, right? Right. But some of the things we're doing <laughs> naturally in our environments that we've gotten rid of, like going out to the park and playing, being yeah. able to kind of explore, being able to go to kindergarten and just play with toys and kind of... Some of those things may be really, really resilient building. Um, so let, let me let me let me let me throw out what, what's in my head right now and see if I'm on the right page. So let me screen it first before it makes me <laughs> <laughs> check my variability. Uh, so 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 future uh, and I, again, I think what's really exciting about this is it's here. We can get these measures fairly simple on the phones we have in our pocket now. Um, I think the technology will catch up very quickly to this as the science is showing how valuable it is too to get, you know, at this point, I think it's hard to get a real time reading of variability with the technology, at least that I've researched, um, you know, to get that in real time, like a heart rate uh, where you've got, you know, on your smartphone or whatever. So, so Jerry, what I'm hearing from you is you take a measurement and then you may have a standardized list of interventions that and again this is kind of future thinking a little bit but i mean i'm talking maybe about next year not 10 years from now you sort of a program could have a set sort of okay if you have high heart rate variability this is what the intervention might be medium low again i'm just really making this incredibly simple and then you would try one of those interventions for kind of where that individual's at and then take another measurement to see if that intervention's effective for that person specifically Right. So you. So what we're talking about is eventually having individually designed medical care, individually designed 
psychiatric care, right, is I'm going to have a much better understanding of what you need as opposed to you come to me and I deliver what I, right, is that we can do it. But really, not everybody in the field is going to be doing this research. We just have to be able to figure out is what's the research telling us and then how to deliver it in, in, in right? And the people who are doing the research have really good skills and are really good at this. They may be not the best people to deliver the, the care. Yeah. Right? It's like, so I, again is how do we put this in language when we talk about the window of tolerance and that people can make use of this stuff to kind of look at that. But really we're beginning to understand that experience has really long-term negative impacts on people, right? Mm -hmm. Exposure things. But we also, if it has negative effects, what are the experiences we have to expose people to with enough repetition to get positive outcomes? Yeah. That's the really, the, that's the million dollar question. How do we sequence the experiences we're exposing people to? And then how do we create the environments that are best designed to deliver those experiences? Mm -hmm. Which is what Kurt's degree was in, de yeah. developing these environments. Yeah. So, so let me, because I, well, I, I think I could stay on this question the whole time, but, but I'm, I'm dying to get to the I'm next question. That. <laughs> we could extend this series out forever. Uh, maybe just rename the podcast if we're not careful. <laughs> okay, another question I asked a while ago was whether heart rate variability was a trait or, or something in our previous conversations that we would talk about a trait being sort of a long-term you know, uh, a long-term way of being, I guess, because I don't want to use the word state in my definition of trait. Whereas a state is a where you're at sort of more in that moment. And I asked the question a while ago, is heart rate variability a state or a trait? And I, we kind of came to the agreement, I think, that it was a trait, but I, I, I'm not sure that's, I, I, I kind of think maybe it's, both so so my question is here's my thinking and and inform me a right wrong way off in left field is so something like repeated traumatic experiences during childhood creates a certain kind of trait and i would think that that trait as it would manifest itself in heart rate variability would mean lower heart rate variability and then again if somebody doesn't get treatment they've had repeated traumatic experiences but, but then it seems like heart rate variability also measures fluctuations within that trait. So in some ways, you, your heart rate variability will stay somewhat consistent, but there is a huge amount of fluctuation depending on the mood you're in, the level of uh, stress you're holding, the window of tolerance. So it's it seems like both a state and a trait? I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of some of the articles that we've read is that it does change more rapidly than, than I think previously thought. Mm -hmm. it, it, I think that the thinking about um, heart rate variability as a measure is that it was more stable and less dynamic than it actually is. And it turns out that it's pretty dynamic. Yeah. That, I mean, there are some, kind of like you can think about uh, windows of tolerance and there could be multiple windows of tolerance within a window of tolerance so that can change with heart rate variability and some of that came from uh, a lot of the studies we haven't really talked about which come from the world of athletic training that your heart rate variability scores and measures can change with what kind of workout you did the previous day yeah and, that, and, and there are intraday measures even that it can change within a day. Yeah. So well, my, my, my like scores can jump within the hundreds of percentiles. Like if I do a measure before a training and then after a training, I mean, you're, you're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, I'm good to go. And it's like, well, you should just go to sleep now. Like, mm -hmm. so even after like a, a four hour training yesterday, great training, had a blast. And yet you look at measures just four hours apart and you've got hundreds of percentiles of swings 
in energy level um, and stress level that it's measuring. So I, it's like I had a big window of tolerance and then I had no window of tolerance. I mean, it's that sort of dramatic. So, so Matt, think about it. Um, think about it in terms of uh, an episode we had on homeostasis, right? Homeostasis is a set point. Yeah. Aliostasis from Bruce McEwen is the mechanisms that allow us to regulate getting out and back to these set points, right? So what you're talking about from this state is I get stressed and now I have to kind of recoup myself and my body's able to recoup myself and I'm able to do that, right? That's, <clears throat> those are states. However, imagine being in a chaotic, threatening, overwhelming environment for a prolonged amount of time that, that has to do with allostatic load. How much your body's having to do that, which actually begins to change the set points and actually begins to have wear and tear on your body to kind of look at that, right? So we have this ability to change states, but if we stay in the state for a prolonged amount of time, our systems become sensitized and begin to change and adapt to living in an environment that has consequences for our body. And that becomes more of a trait that mm -hmm. you begin to look at that, right? So they're both, right? And instead of thinking about it, is it one or the other, they're both. And okay. you have to hold that, is that we all have this ability to respond to demands and then recoup, right? But if the demands stay in our environment, for example, if I'm a, an, an infant or a child without, in a chaotic, threatening, unresponsive environment, my biology has to somehow change. My nervous system becomes sensitized and I become more reactive to stress, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm having to kind of be in that state, which then has impacts on my immune system, impacts on my endocrine system, impacts on my cardiovascular system, right? To kind of look at that, that we talked about in the ACEs studies. Yeah. Right? So, the, so again, is we want to find, is it this or this? It's both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I think- to categorize things, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I think this is a really important category, because what I was thinking of it is a, really a trait, you know, it, again, I, I think one of the interesting things about this is the amount of fluctuation. I, I think a little thing in my own life that I've seen is I, I love this video game called civilization where you build empires and you like you, you farm you do you do all these like fun things but but my read my heart rate variability readings after playing those games showed a high level of stress so while i was i love these games you can sit and play them for like the way i play you play them for like 18 hours it's ridiculous but it's it's a little bit better than just sitting there and watching tv but what my heart rate variability says is better just to sit back and watch Game of Thrones. And that's better for me um, in a weird way. If you have ever watched Game of Thrones, you wouldn't think that's a healthy uh, coping skill. But, but I'm actually much healthier just sitting back and watching TV than playing that game, or at least my heart rate variability. So instead of saying one is better than the other, Think about it is that I had, because of your heart rate variability, it may be better for you to stress yourself somewhat today and play games. Yeah. But if you're staying in this high stressed out state for a prolonged amount of time, it's better for you to do something to downregulate your systems. Yeah. So it's not, this state is better than this. This state is what you need to respond to the environment. Yeah. Right? We need to be able to activate that sympathetic nervous system when it, we wouldn't survive without it. Right. Right. But we wouldn't survive without this ability to then downregulate, uh, restore, um, and, and move back to a sense of health and growth. Yeah. Right. So it's what you're talking about is what's the balance of these systems, not is this a good system or is this a bad system? That makes right? totally there's, yeah. there's a lot of good things associated with the parasympathetic nervous system, right? Flexibility, adaptability. 
um, openness to the environment to kind of look at that. But I don't want to be in my parasympathetic nervous system when there's a tiger in the room. Right. Right. It's like, that's a great system, but I need this other system to engage me when I need to be engaged. Yeah. So when we start to look at bad and good, is that's an old model of, oh, this is a good, really they work in unison to be able to, in some ways, adjust our ability to respond to the demands without moving into these kind of, um, you know, if I got on to the airport today, if I didn't have a parasympathetic break on my stress response system, I would start attacking people in the airport to get them my right to kind of looking at that. But because I do, I can get stressed, but stay regulated enough to be able to manage it, right? To kind of looking at that. That's heart rate variability. Yeah. It's allowing us to do that piece, right? So that, that there's a good example of it's the cooperation between these systems. Of, yeah. Not one is good and one is bad. Right. Well, I think, well, no, I I think, think it, it goes to, that. Jerry, kind of what you were saying, too, about the interventions is because my job, well, well I love what I do. It is like there's peaks to it, right? They, I think if you, you put on a six, seven-hour presentation uh, and you don't leave exhausted, you, you probably left some stuff on the table, so to speak. So it's like living the life I live that game might not be the healthiest way for me to spend my downtime. Um, I just need to be a more passive piece of that. So, yeah, I, I think I totally get what you say about good and bad, but I think it's, an, it's a kind of just in my own personal life, it's an interesting example of kind of that having, being conscious of a menu of options, so to speak. Right. Of, okay, what, what does my biology tell me what I need now? So my pre-major sort of can tell me, okay, I'm doing rock and roll. I've had a great calm week. I can play 12 hours of civilization. That's probably not healthy no matter what. But I, I can play the game, and, and it's not going to negatively impact my health after that. Um, whereas if I've had a really hard week, it might not be the best way to spend my weekend. There are a couple of points about your, your example that I think are important to talk about. And one is that this measure of heart rate variability is, is as Jerry mentioned earlier, it's separate from subjective experience. Mm. It, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily tell us subjective experience and we learned that from our from the article about um comorbid autism and anxiety that you had these children who had comorbid autism and anxiety and their subjective experience of anxiety did not track with their changes in heart rate and heart rate variability they experienced more anxiety and they had higher heart rate variability mm. it was a really interesting that yeah. they are they are related to one another, but they are, they don't, they aren't exactly the same. You don't have the exactly the same experience. And, and that kind of helps us with thinking about how at times our, our physiology, because of what we've lived through and gone through can get kind of turned on its head a little bit where becoming calm doesn't feel right. Right. right? That, that, that state doesn't feel normal. And so you get driven to do th something to increase your physiological state, which often is in, in, in the treatment world of, of uh, behavioral disorders, we'll, we'll hear people describe that as causing crisis. So, right. So, so there's, a, there's a drive there. The other thing that I think is important about, about Matt, about your example, is that using the measure, and I think this is, kind of speaks to Jerry's question about what intervention should you try and what, what can work, just the fact of measuring it got you to be open to a different experience okay. and to think about one game versus another game as beneficial versus non-beneficial. And that's an intervention in and of itself. Yeah. Just doing that can be very, and I found that to be repeatedly very effective in, in opening up people's thinking about different possibilities and new ways of interacting with the world and affecting their own biology and physiology. So, so, so to piggyback, I think that was a really good point, Kurt, to kind of look at that. So, Matt, um, you know, thinking about Margaret Blaustein's work on the ARC model, to kind of look at that, three important questions to ask people. One is, what's your energy level? Where, where are you at, right, in your body, right? Because you basically say, I know where I'm really up and I know where I'm down, right? The question, the second question is that is, 
How comfortable is that for you? Yeah. Right? Is you may say is it's really good for me to go and watch the Game of Thrones and relax, but that state might not be comfortable for you, which it yeah. goes back to this issue of when I'm less anxious, my body is less more regulated, it feels uncomfortable to me. Mm-hmm. And then the, other, the next question is, is the state you're in effective for doing the job that you're asked to do? So if you had to get up and do another presentation, you wouldn't want to get in a state to watch the Game of Thrones. Right. But if you had the opportunity to relax and to do it, you might take that. So mm-hmm. there's one of what's your, what's your state and then what's your subjective assessment of that state? And then does it match what you're being asked to do in your current situation? Yeah. So that, you know, what does that mean for, say, somebody who's homeless? Right? How do I get to a place where I could just sit down and relax and watch the Game of Thrones if I'm homeless and I've got to be a, right? That may be uncomfortable and, and create anxiety for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. So the next question, <laughs> you know, one of, one of the, I'm trying to move us along. Right. So let me ask you, what's your subjective? Do you feel like you've got answers to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's, it gives you a lot of insight, and I think it allows you to, you know, the other thing I gave up, which I'm really kind of pissed off about this one, is caffeine, um, because I could see difference in my heart rate variability before and after I drank my herba mate, uh, which I love herba mate, but, you know, uh, again, it's, I know I probably had do, do too much caffeine. Um, so I cut back on that. So, so it's, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's, uh, you know, you see these trends in your own life and it does help you. I know. Sage tea. I'm on sage tea now. Doesn't quite give you the boost though. Uh, feel it a little better. So yeah, I, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. And I think that it, again, it gives us some of those, uh, again, it gives us a concrete major because you know, I, I agree with you, Kurt, on the, the subjective experience piece of it. Um, but, but at the same time, I, I think it, in some ways it might measure subjective experience as well. I, I think if I, I could predict, I'm getting to the point where I can predict sort of my heart rate variability by the mood that I'm in and those sort of things as well. So, so I, I get that we need to understand the subjective experience on top of this, uh, no argument there, but I, I think that it's interesting the more the more data I get on myself, the more heart rate variability and subjective experience seem to be tied with each other. And that's an N of one being me, but uh, getting there. So, so my next question, because I, I think this is one I've also kind of struggled with is, is this teaching us anything new about trauma? I think uh, from, from the articles I've read I think it's fascinating, and yet I'm not sure. I'm not sure I really, as far as like the global knowledge of trauma. I think trauma and heart rate variability. Yeah, we're learning about how trauma impacts heart rate variability. But are we really? Have we really learned anything new through heart rate variability about the impact of trauma itself, or is it another sort of data points to back up sort of what we already know? I can give a kind of a guess to that, but I think Jerry probably answered the question a little bit better than I can. I think one of the things that is super important that it is telling us is it's giving us some information about why some people may be able to go through very traumatic experiences and come out the other side without developing PTSD. That this baseline level of heart rate variability and the way that our physiology is organized can be a protective factor in addition to social environments and you know all of those things that that we also know about um, but it, it gives us as i think you've kind of alluded to matt it gives us a pretty fine-tuned measure yeah. that can help us be pretty predictive about about understanding why some people may develop ptsd and why some may not and i think that's one of the, the key things to, to pull away from it you know I think the question you're always asking, which is a good question is, how do we translate research into practical clinical application, right? And 
how do we use research to um, help us validate and improve clinical application? And sometimes it's easy to make these transitions and sometimes it takes a level of knowledge and kind of thinking about to translate this. So, you know, we had an episode on epigenetics, the fact that our genes change. Well, what does that mean when I'm with a client? Do I, you know, do I ask you about your genes to kind of looking at that? But what we know is, is that experience not only impacts us in the moment, it's going to impact us over a long period of time. And now we know it may even impact the next generation. Yeah. Right? But we've got to develop what does that mean for us to do it. So the best way that I do it is I look at what are the things that I know, like window of tolerance, mm -hmm. right? And I say is, okay, so this really is fitting into my, um, my understanding of window of tolerance. Or I look at you know, when I listen to uh, Dr. Perry talk about uh, sensitization versus tolerance building, right? Is that for some individuals, their nervous systems become sensitized. How does this measure fit into that model to kind of look at what's happening biologically that's to kind of do it? But we're really, when I'm with a family, I'm with a in, in a consult with a school, I talk about a sensitized nervous system, that this child's ability to manage stress is less, right? I'm not really going to talk to them about the kid's heart rate variability, mm -hmm. right? Because for them, they want to know what's the application of that, right? But I do need to understand because the science is constantly moving and changing and maybe actually challenging beliefs we had. Mm -hmm. So I have to be I have to be adaptive as a clinician to be able to read and understand the science, but it doesn't always translate really clearly. This does, but there are other things that don't really translate very quickly to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Right? So that that's why these podcasts of us having dialogues from behavioral learning models to dynamic models to kind of are really good because it helps us to digest some of this information and make it more practical. Yeah, great. So the the other thing that the thing that I think if, if I was in a service like some of my past jobs where I was a program director running programs, I, I think after listening, well, I know because I've, I've, I've obviously implemented this in my own program I call my life. Um, that uh, I would feel a lot of cognitive dissonance to figure out a way to utilize heart rate variability to inform my programming, sort of like we've talked about. So I've, I've talked about the Welltory app that I, I like sometimes, it's, 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 it's good. Um, I'll, I'll leave it at good. I don't think it's great, but it's good. It's taught me a lot about myself, so I think it's worth the, the investment. But, you know, it's relatively cheap to get heart rate variation measures. When, if people should think about how, how should I think about integrating this into my programming? Is it, is it at that sort of level yet? Is there a practical application to this for education, child welfare, the justice system, I mean, are, are we there yet kind of thing? You know, I, Kurt, it sounds like you're implementing it um, and some of your teams working with it. And I just kind of like, I think the cognitive dissonance is, oh crap, we've got a tool. I want to use the tool because it tells us almost everything um, from our discussions. Um, what advice do you give people like me who are sitting here and saying, we need to know everybody's heart rate variability because it'll tell us if we're successful or not. I think, um, I mean, obviously I, I've used it for a little while and, and, yeah. and have used really simple, simple technology. You, not even getting heart rate variability, but just getting heart rate. Yeah. And, and that's been, even that's been really, really helpful. Um, so I, I think I would say to anybody who wants to do it, I mean, uh, you can learn a lot about it by reading and, and understanding a lot of these kind of articles and points that we've talked about. 
Um, and it's not so scary. Like you're, you're not going to mess it up really. Like you're not going to mess anybody up by being more in tune with their internal state. Um, I, I would say that you, you have to know a, a lot of details because you get a lot of questions about it as I think evidenced by some of the questions you had today, Matt, and over the course of these series, right? As we think about things like high is good, low is bad. Well, it's not quite that simple. Like sometimes, you know, in subjective experience, when you put on top of that, um, somebody could have a high heart rate and not experience anxiety. And for a lot of us who think about our, and our, our physiology is organized around high heart rate is what I experience when I'm anxious. Mm-hmm. It's hard to connect with that as, you know, from an experiential standpoint. And so there are a lot of questions like that, that I think they're important to be able to answer. Um, but they're answerable and you can, you know, sometimes the answer is, I don't know, I got to go read something more about that, <laughs> that you stumped me. Um, so I think yeah. that it's, it, it's, I think that it's at a point where looking at the body of, of literature, just that I've read about, which is I'm sure a very small portion of what's, what's totally out there. Um, it's used in a lot of different places you know, from athletic training to predicting affective instability in daily life and I've seen it in some um, business related articles about using this as an understanding maybe not the measure itself but as a way of understanding how to organize meetings and how to organize organizational cultures and it's tied really closely to a lot of good things that we already know Mm -hmm. and and so in a lot of ways it's um, it's kind of confirming what we what we know and then it's also expanding what we didn't know um, like your example of maybe this video game is is having an impact on my biology that I didn't know about before. And I think one of the cool things that you said about that and kind of round out what, what advice I would give to people is being open to new experiences and the way that just being more in tune with your internal state using a measure that you wouldn't have any other way mm-hmm. really can kind of help you to organize things in a different way. And you go as you, you learn as you go, essentially. Yeah. Like once you start measuring something and like as they as they say what what gets measured gets done yeah and in in a lot of ways that holds true with this yeah as you measure it you get more in tune with both your own internal state and the internal state of others and it it really helps you be more effective in interacting with yourself and with others yeah well when i think the the cool thing of where the technology is going is you know with well tori you know the one the the thing that i'm using is it tells you where it doesn't just give you a number. And I think that's the really cool thing. They have, they believe that they have enough data built up over time from different readings. And it sounds like, I mean, I looked at the science, it sounds like they've really collected uh, more data than seems like anybody else on these baselines. And, you know, so you get told where you're at, you get told kind of also where you're at compared to other readings and then what you need to do per the state that you're sort of in what's the healthiest next step so so it's like it's not like hey i get a number and it's like oh I, my heart rate's at a 60 right now it's like it tells you kind of what to do and it usually seems like if i listen to it it it's right which sometimes i hate to admit like when i gave up caffeine but <laughs> jerry jerry what would you give people advice on, on this right now well um i think people have to look at what's the priority in their programs mm-hmm Right. So, for example, um, when we look at if we get more data and understanding that, it might be that when you if you we did research that lots of kids coming into heart to residential have low heart rate variability. Mm-hmm. So I set the program up designed to deal with low heart rate variability. Right. Right. And one of the things that the research is telling us is that people who approach suffering in others with compassion, it alters their heart rate variability. Yeah. Right? So when we train people about trauma and about how people have to adapt to situations and they're doing the best they can, when we give that knowledge to our staff in our building and instead of them trying to seek compliance and obedience and other things, that actually changes the staff's heart rate variability, mm-hmm. which 
in some ways makes them stay more socially engaged with the clients, which has a higher likelihood of altering the clients. Yeah. Variability, right? So I could take some of this science to begin to say is, I don't have to measure everybody. Maybe I have, that's something I want to do. And th there's really a science moves that may be cheaper and more, right? Mm -hmm. But really there's some generalizations we can make. You know, for example, how many kids come into residential that have uh, self-regulation issues? <laughs> right? Right? So I gotta uh, how many have trauma? Yeah. So I got to measure everybody to find out, right? So in a way, I, I, have to, I have to prepare my staff to be well-regulated, really attentive, really attuned, really responsive, and I've got to create the structures to support them doing that. To kind of looking at those things. So if we take this literature that's beginning to help us say this creates stress sensitivity and I'm bringing in clients who are highly stress sensitive, what do I do to, to decrease the stress, right? Consistency, mm -hmm. structure, predictability, all those things become talking to them about so they know what the treatment's going and what we're being transparent, giving them choice and, and voice in the process to kind of do all those things that we hear about trauma-informed principles mm -hmm. are designed for people with low heart rate variability. Yeah. Right? yeah. So right. what it what I, I the the extreme would be is yes, you go out and you buy equipment and you you measure everybody. The other piece is you use this literature to guide your program design and training and support of the staff that are providing those kinds of things. And, and when they get dysregulated, how do you respond to them in a way to get them back in their window of tolerance and kind of, right, to kind of looking at some of those things. Yeah. So I think that we spend this much time over episodes talking about this, so hopefully not everybody's gonna go and measure it, but it can validate some things they're already doing in their program of which they have to increase the efforts to do it and some things that they have where they're just holding people accountable for points and other things. And it's not that point systems can't be good or bad in some situations, but if I'm using it as a compliance model, not as a treatment intervention, it's a problem. Yeah. Right? These, these, as Kurt will talk, as he talks, you get a sense of these concepts of, of reinforcement, of understanding, are really complex. So you can't just say, I'm going to create a program and everybody who comes through this is going to get the, I mean, really it's way, it's a way more complex process. So um, my takeaway is, Matt, if you were designing your program, I would bring this literature to you and say, your kids are coming in and your families are coming in with low heart rate variability. What are you doing in your program design to address that? Mm -hmm. Right? And... And that's, really, that's that's the trauma-informed principles we've been dis we've discussed for sixty-nine episodes in there some you, ways. There you go, right? Yeah. So it's not so it, it, they didn't just pick those principles up out of nowhere. They went to the literature, looked at the literature, and said, "What is this telling us about how our treatment approaches, how our educational approaches, how our coaching models, all these things have to change in order to increase." the efficiency of our biological systems to do what they optimally could do. Yeah, I, I just, yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, I, I agree with that. And I know everybody can't run out and buy heart rate monitors because they're, they're not cheap. And to get variable heart rate is even a little bit more difficult with our current technology. I mean, I, I think that what, what it gives you, though, is, and I, again, heart rate might be where we're at more technology-wise, is, you know, really looking at, you know, a, a real key, I think, quality measure in some ways when I think about this, about how well our interventions are doing. And I think it gives us state information as well, because I think we, we in some ways know the trade information uh, with populations a lot of times, but it gives us more of, a, okay, where's this person at at 1 p.m.? Uh, I, I may want to ask my team, you know, I'm more interested in them staying open and engaged to the clients. Oh, yeah. Right? I, so I may, as we go to team meetings, say, let's take a moment to take our heart rate variability, right? It's like, yeah. let's take a, and let's take a little, if it's really low, let's take some time to just 
before I start drilling you with information, let's get ourselves ready. Yeah. I may talk to a foster parent about that, right? To yeah. kind of look at some of those type, types of things. So in, in a way, it's a very useful measure. But I, what I don't want people to leave to say is, well, if I don't go and get a measure out there, it's not a useful information for me. Right, absolutely. We just spent all this time to help you understand why the trauma-informed principles and practices that you're placing into your program are really essential and they're supported by the biological data we're, we're, we're finding. Yeah. And you mentioned, I, I've got, I added a question that I want to finish on. So, so I'll just support what Jerry said, because one of my questions was about our own health and self-care. And I would, I think I would highly encourage people to, um, again, you can get these apps for free. Uh, obviously with all apps, if you pay a little bit more, you get more data, but you know, I think this is because I think there's a future to this. Um, and so trying to learn about yourself, I think, is a very useful tool. So my question was, should we think about this with our own self-care? I think, Jerry, I love your example of before we start meetings, starting to integrate this with us and our own culture is a great place to start. Um, you know, I, I kind of look at this as mindfulness, as I think mindfulness will be will just grow in popularity. The research is incredible. And where we start is our own practice. Because uh, if we're not practicing, we shouldn't be probably teaching it to other, other folks. And I, I see this like this. And that allows me to get to my last question here is, is heart rate variability a theory of everything? <laughs> I, I, in some ways, I mean, is this a heart rate variability informed? Instead of, because it seems a major trauma and um and so is it a kind of theory of everything even maybe more so than you know what we've traditionally called trauma informed i'll answer that and then i'll let um kurt maybe end the session is when we are in relation that's biologically responsible and responsive we are healthier Right? When we create systems and practices that are sensitive to the developmental rhythms and needs of our clients, of our students, of our children, right? when we are better regulated, open and curious and compassionate, we're going to create open and curious and compassionate children to kind of looking at that, right? And so is it... it Really, when we understand our biology and design the environments and the experiences that are sensitive to that, we all do better. So that's my answer to that question. I think as I look at um, trauma-informed care, Matt, like to kind of like directly answer that question, one of the things that I think was the, a, a major goal of trauma-informed care was to better connect with each individual person and better understand each individual person. And to that end, I think that heart rate variability has great promise for individualizing care mm -hmm. in a really fundamental way. So I, I don't think that it's a different paradigm and I don't, I, don't, I don't think that. I think that it's a part of an existing paradigm, but it has some really, really great implications and potential for further individualizing care, which I think is kind of the whole point of, of a trauma-informed approach and connecting with each individual in a fundamental way. And that's one of my, the most exciting things I think about heart rate variability. Right, and that's the hard part of calling this trauma-informed. People get stuck on the trauma. And really what we are understanding is because the, the impact of stress, we really wanna to get to resilience. Right, and, and we should be a resilient informed systems, right, as, a, as opposed to just trauma. Because as soon as we hear trauma, it's like, oh, that's for those six people over there in the uh, corner over there that are really being angry and throwing things or cutting on themselves. It's like, this is about our, all of our biology, as you're over and over talking about how it's helping you in your own life. Mm -hmm. Great. What a discussion. This was fun. So I, I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. So uh, Kurt, Jerry, thanks for letting me put you through uh, the last hour. Th this was a blast. I think I got a lot more 
understanding as well with this. And I'm, I'm sort of grab, I'm kind of, I'm with you on the resiliency thing, though. I think we need to figure out what we mean when we say resiliency, because I think, again, kids are surviving horrific situations. They wake up every day and face life. And yet we, we know that it doesn't necessarily sometimes help them move forward. So, but it's, but it's creating wear and what they're living through is creating wear and tear on their body. Exactly. They're surviving that. So we want them to be in a healthier biological state in a healthier relational environment that allows them not to be in that high state of arousal all the time to kind of look at that. Right. So, Again, is yes. Oh, they survived, and kids can manage a lot of things. It's like, yeah, but there's a cost to that. Yeah. Well, and I, I think again, this might be a major that helps us see the translation between the resiliency to survive and post-traumatic growth too. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you know that 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 when I put that in the language, it, it helps. Uh, Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you're interested in more information about HRV, please visit us at optimalhrv.com. Also, if you visit OptimalHRV.com, you'll be able to sign up for our email list and download our free ebook, Healing with HRV. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next episode.